Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, brought to you by summersf1.co.uk, making F1 tech easier to understand. Today's episode is called Brendan Who? I'm your host, Chris Rainbow Sparkle Stevens, and I am joined by the Missed Apex font of awesomeness, Matt Tumpets. How's it going, Matt? Oh, well, not a lot. Very well done, by the way. Kudos on the uh, excellent trumpet. Yes, third time of asking. Uh, and it says here in the notes, I'm supposed to explain that if production is terrible today, it's my fault because I'm in charge. But I, it, that's not going to happen because I'm just simply, well, I mean, we've only had one hiccup on the stream so far. Yeah, I mean, just because you started off streaming to the wrong place entirely and then forgot to change the title doesn't mean that anything else is going to go wrong. I mean, look at Ferrari, for example. They had the big crash and then they had the and then. uh, Yeah, well, maybe that's not the best example, but I, I have to say good job on nailing the intro the very first time. Which is more than could be said sometimes of uh, of Spanish. So this is already going brilliantly. Uh, this week we are going to get a special glimpse of Formula One with Mark Priestley. Uh, we're going to cover some F1 tech with Summers and uh, speculate endlessly for no reason other than your own entertainment. Uh, first of all, I will say that we are an independent podcast hosted by MissedApexPodcast.com. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. This show is safe for work. We're keeping it clean here so that you can play this with the kids in the background or at work. Uh, so let's uh, say hello to our guest for today. It is Summers F1, Matthew Summerfield. It's great to have you back. Thanks, uh, Chris. It's good to be back. How are you guys? 
yeah, we're doing just fine. I'm really excited to to get into uh, some tech stuff and some news because it's been a crazy uh, couple of weeks. We will uh, catch up with you guys later on uh, in the show. First of all, if you want to join the live stream, find Missed Apex Podcast on YouTube and hit that subscribe button, the little bell, and you will get a notification every time we go live. And before we dive into the news, let's have a listen to what Mark Priestley had to say about his new book, the Mechanic. Hi guys, Spanners here. I hope you're having a great tech time show or news or whatever it is you're doing. I don't care because I'm off on my adventures. I will be back next Sunday for the race review. But earlier in the week, I was able to catch up with Sky F1 pundit and former McLaren mechanic, Mark Priestley. So I'm going to play that now. Please excuse the background noise. Mark was squeezing us in between filming and book promo, and I'm incredibly grateful that he went well out of his way to find a decent signal to speak to us. So please enjoy our chat with Mark Priestley. We are delighted to be joined here in the shed by F1 Pundit and former McLaren number one mechanic. Welcome to the shed, Mark Priestley. Hello again. Mark, you have a book about the life you had in Formula One called The Mechanic, The Secret World of the F1 Pit Lane. Is is this the first time you've kind of tried to do a, a tell-all about life in the paddock? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's the first time I've ever written anything with more than a thousand words in. So it was a, it was a, a real challenge. Um, but I think actually I'm pleased with the way it's come out. And it's, you know, I was very fortunate to work at, um, at McLaren through a 10-year period when actually there was a lot happening. So, you know, we were quite successful at, you know, throughout that spell. We had the likes of Lewis Hamilton emerge on the scene. We had oh, yeah. Spygate. Um, we had Fernando and Lewis, you know, with their sort of battles and fights in 2007 and all sorts of other bits of controversy and stuff that I'd forgotten about until I really started to delve into it. So it's been a fascinating project to go through. And being released tactically on the 2nd of November 2017, that is a perfect stocking filler, I think, for any F1 fan. Absolutely. Happy Christmas, everybody. Uh, you're welcome. So, so clearly you don't <laughs> yeah. want to give the book's contents away, but we do want to tease something away from you because mostly now we know you as the tassel-haired F1 pundit, but you started as a, <laughs> as a mechanic and you made your way to number one mechanic. Is there any way you can put that in context for us? Because we seem to only hear from the executives and then maybe the, the race engineer on, on the radio, and they're the ones that get the yeah. glory. So where does a, a mechanic sit? Yeah, so each driver has its own team of mechanics and engineers who work solely with that driver and with that car. And um, so you've almost got two teams within the, the main team, if you like. And I was uh, a mechanic on, on one side of that garage for a number of years and then became the number one mechanic. Um, so what that means is you're then in charge of that car and in charge of that group of people. So there's a responsibility of, of being ultimately responsible for everything that happens to that to that race car so and you, for the crew of guys that work on it. So you get like the final sign-off. When that thing just stops mid-track, do people just all eyes turn yeah. on you? <laughs> well, essentially, yes. I mean, you know, that the car should never leave the garage until the number one mechanic is, is happy and says it's okay for it to leave. So the buck does stop. Um, you know, with, with the number one mechanic in those instances. So it's quite a lot of, you know, it's quite a lot of responsibility. It's quite a lot of pressure. And you're having to sort of man manage the other people in that crew, of which there could be up to sort of five or six with the uh, 
sort of gearbox mechanics and engine mechanics and people that fall under your responsibility. So there's a reasonable amount of, of pressure on anybody working in Formula One, but I suppose a number one mechanic has, uh, has a, a little bit more responsibility than most. See, the number one mechanic sounds like they should be being interviewed as much as the uh, team principals and the drivers. I mean, you guys are as much a part of the end product. I mean, look at Ferrari. Obviously, maybe that's the number one mechanic not quite doing his bit. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to say exactly what happens with Ferrari. I mean, um, you know, there are things that are always going to be beyond uh, a mechanic or an engineer's control because particularly when you're talking about the Ferrari incident where it looks like it's an outside supplier's supplied part that's been bought in essentially and, and used but in terms of talking to the media i saw you know your, your comments on twitter the other day and i thought Do you know i mean i think it's really interesting to hear from that side of the team yeah. and that's one of the reasons that i kind of moved from from what i was doing into the media side that i am now because i feel like i and and other members of formula one teams have a really interesting insight and a, perhaps a different perspective than the one you get from from the team principal or uh, or a team spokesman, if you like. The reason it doesn't happen more, the reason we don't get interviews with mechanics and, and engine, race engineers more is mostly because the team themselves want to very carefully and meticulously control what comes out from them in the media. You know, essentially, they are the voice of the team, whoever you put in front of the camera. Are you saying they don't um, trust the mechanics to, to, <laughs> to not, <laughs> drop the, not drop the ball? Well... I suspect there may be some of that going on, but I think also you've just got to choose one person uh, who will be your voice that can be controlled. And, you know, in all honesty, at the moments when there are interviews being done, i.e. post-session, the mechanics are generally pretty busy. So I don't, I don't see there's any reason why you can't have uh, some input from the mechanics. And I think it would be a really valuable side of things. Um, but I think to be the team spokesman, it just doesn't work practically. You guys just get underrated, especially when you get dragged up on the podium. They don't even give you any champagne to join in the fight. You just sit there being drenched. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, well, listen, when I was, um, I was talking to somebody about this earlier, when I was a kid, when I was a, uh, a teenager, looking at what I was going to do with my life, my friends, most of them, this is kind of in the book, most of my friends were talking about either wanting to be racing drivers if they were fans of Formula One or footballers or whatever. Yeah. And I had this really weird fascination with the engineering side. When I watched Formula One, I was fascinated with the pit stops and with the engineering of the cars. And so I had this desire to become, you know, a, a pit stop crew member or, an, or a race engineer or something. And, of course, looking back, that was stupid because I'd have earned <laughs> an absolute fortune as a racing driver compared to, to being a race mechanic. But I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and hopefully the book is a real nice insight into what goes on behind the scenes with, with some of that. Because it is a, it's an incredible life working for a Formula One team. And particularly through the spell, as I say, that I was there at McLaren, I was very lucky to be not only at a great team that was at the front end of the grid, but there during a great period of time as well. So I do think it's quite, I think it's an interesting read. It gives you a different insight, particularly, as you say, you don't hear from the, these guys no. very much in Formula One, so hopefully that's something that's a little bit unique about it. So what's your standout memory then from the panic? When when you're an old man sitting on the porch and little Jimmy asks, <laughs> uh, Grandpa Elvis, tell me about F1 in the olden days. <laughs> um, well, where do I start? I mean, I've had so many, and I think that's what was quite... Actually, you know, in writing the book, it wasn't a challenge in trying to find enough stuff to fill it. It was more of a challenge in trying to choose the things that should go in and, and choose the things that had to be cut from it. 
um, because I, you know, I had some amazing times. I mean, clearly, the winning the world title with Lewis Hamilton has to be a real standout moment for me. Not just because we won it, but in the way that we won it, you know, everybody I'm sure listening will remember that 2008 finale in Brazil. I mean, it was just an emotional roller coaster is a much overused phrase, but I can't think of any better way to describe that last lap or last two laps of that race. It was just unbelievable. And the emotional outpouring when, when we finally realized we'd done it was just I mean, just incredible. So, so by the time um, we I mean, can get to that point in the race where there's one or two, two things, the pit stops are out of the way, the car's looking pretty reliable. Are you at that point, you're just glued to the screens as, with as much tension as we yeah. are? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, even more so. I remember I still have this memory of um, having taken my pit stop helmet off because I, I was pretty confident we weren't going to be needed to do any more pit stops at that point. Um, I remember watching the screens and Nicole Scherzinger, who of course was going out with Lewis yeah. Hamilton at the time, was behind me in the garage. And the screams coming out of her <laughs> mouth were more deafening than any pit stop I've ever been involved with. And that's a standout memory, it was her screams throughout it. But um, it was just, you know, one moment we thought we'd lost it and, and I can't even begin to, to sort of properly explain the disappointment but the entire season and everything that goes into it, um, it's not, you know, I always say to people, being a Formula One mechanic is, it's not, or anybody working in Formula One, it's not just a job, it's, it's a lifestyle that you have to sort of buy into. It's great, and I love, you know, I've loved every minute of it, but it is hard work, you know, there's yeah. a, an awful, you know, it's long hours, it's a lot of time away from home, a lot of travel, um, and, and all of that blood, sweat and tears goes into trying to tick that box, particularly a big team like McLaren, to tick that elusive box of becoming world champions. And when you get down to the final moments and it's still a possibility and then it looked like it had gone, the disappointment was, was just immense. And of course, from the garage, there's nothing we can do at that point. We, we can't influence the race from that, that moment. Um, but then, you know, two corners later and it turned back the other way and, and, and all of the emotion comes flooding back in the other way. And I mean, I can't even remember what I did at the moment. <laughs> I was trying to remember for, for the book. It's just a blur because it was just, I mean, possibly, you know, just the best moment, I think, in, in motorsport for me was just the, the, the emotional outpouring from the entire garage and this, the crowd and everything. And one of my memories that, that really stands out is not only from the, the elation in our side, but seeing the Ferrari guys on the TV Ooh. from their garage yeah. and how disappointing it was at their end. And I, you know, I, I had huge sympathy for them um, because I'd felt it moments earlier when I thought we'd lost it and they'd won it. And so I did have to, you know, you do have to sort of appreciate that for the, the, amazing, yeah. the amazing time that we had, they had quite the opposite of that. It's um, A lot of people think that maybe the constructor's title is more important, but when it's a, your driver on the line, I assume that means as much as the, the team title as well. Yeah, so, so within these small crews, you know, the crews for each driver, their goal, their ultimate goal is to get their driver to win the, the, the driver's world championship. So that's the biggest target, I guess, for, for those crew of people. Everyone else in the team... Is you know is desperate for that constructors title because they don't have a, an affiliation to one side of the team or the other. They just want the team to win. So it's different. There's, a, there's some different dynamics going on within a, within a team. But to be honest, to win any of them yeah. is such a hard thing to do. 
it, it would be um, criminal of me not to ask you briefly about the 2007 split between the garages because yeah. when it's all going nicely I, I guess you're a nice team but when it starts bogging down into really separate <laughs> sides of the pit garage is that as awkward and as bad as it's made out to be in the media uh yeah it was yeah. more awkward than it was made out in the in the media 2007 more. was um was both the sort of best and worst year because I'd had a sort of promotion. So at that point, I was now in charge of the the T car, the spare car in the garage. So I was running that car um, and overseeing lots of things going on on both sides of the garage. So I wasn't necessarily affiliated to either driver. And we had the best car in the pit lane by the end of the season. We had two, probably the two best drivers, probably the two best drivers I've ever worked with in Lewis and Fernando. And so the champ, you know, both championships should have been a walk in the park for us. Um, and the constructors' championship, which we had never won in my time at McLaren, was there for the taking. We were so far ahead in the championship that year; it should have been easy pickings. And yet, the whole lot was taken away by both the Spygate scandal and then the Lewis and Fernando fighting with each other. And when they did squabble with each other, which happened very early in the season, yep. don't forget this was Lewis's first ever season in Formula 1. So he came in as this kind of young rookie with his eyes wide, trying to learn as much as he could, to very quickly realising that he could actually take on Fernando, the current world champion, and he was as quick as him, if not quicker at certain He, he wasn't supposed to and do so that, though, was he? No, it wasn't part of the plan. It certainly wasn't part of Fernando's plan. I don't think any of us expected it. Um, I mean, I'll give you a quick idea of, of how little we expected that. In the build-up to that season, at McLaren, we had two new drivers coming in, um, which is a rarity anyway. So we had two crews of mechanics and engineers without a driver. Everybody was fighting to be on Fernando's car wow. before the season started because... Nobody wanted to be on Lewis's car. They thought it'd be a difficult season. They thought it'd be slow. He'd be crashing everywhere. Um, yeah, and so there was a lot of internal politics that we found that year with people desperately trying to be on the number one car, which I thought would be Fernando. And of course, six races into the season, actually, it, you know, it was, a, it was a different story. And Lewis was equally as good. And as I say, better at summer circuits. And and when the two drivers began to fall out, which kind of happened around Monaco, it was the first mm -hmm. time it really, it really manifested itself. The two drivers very publicly fell out. And so the two teams, the two teams of crews and mechanics, naturally sort of gravitate towards their own driver. That's incredible. And kind of huddle around him and, and you know, want to back him up. And they're, they're all of a sudden naturally on his side. And so you get this, this really strange split down the middle of the garage where people are, are literally looking across the other side of the garage at, at what they determine as the enemy. Um, <laughs> Within the team. It was, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's such a strange environment. I'd never had anything like it before in my life, and in my motorsport career, and, uh, and I and haven't actually since. It was just such a strange thing where people were starting to withhold information from each other. Even the mechanics were starting to, to socialise less and to talk to each other less. Really? The engineering teams weren't weren't sharing the things that they'd learned on a Friday with the other team as openly as they could. They were holding stuff back. And it became a very strange dynamic, a very strange place to work. Cannot wait to read that in your, in your book. Um, you also, you often speak of Ron Dennis at that time being an inspiration to you. Because, I mean, I mean, he's not a telly-friendly person, is he? He comes off a bit mean and he uses long <laughs> words and stuff. And uh, So to hear you kind of say, no, this man really inspired me, was fascinating. 
very, very difficult man to work for. Um, and at the time, if you'd asked me when I was in the midst of my McLaren career whether he inspired me and whether he was, <laughs> I looked up to him, I might have, I might have given you a different answer um, because he made life very difficult. His attention to detail, he has OCD, undoubtedly. I think he'd admit that himself. Um, but he, his attention to detail is second to none, and he expects that from everybody who works on McLaren. And so, you know, at times you feel like you are spending more time kind of cleaning your your work your benches or your desk or your your workspace more so than you were <laughs> actually doing anything yes. productive on the cars. Um, but having said that, when I now look back and see the bigger picture, he was he was an innovative man. He was a visionary for someone of his age at the time. He had some ideas that have transformed Formula One. I mean. He absolutely led this revolution in things like the, the, the um, paddock motorhomes. Uh, and whether you agree or disagree that they are, are lovely, the ones that they have now, they're impressive. If you're showing guests around or clients, potential sponsors, um, you can't help but be wowed by what you see in a Formula 1 paddock now. That didn't exist until Ron Dennis transformed what used to be just literally a motorhome, a bus morning off the side, into this purpose-built, you know, semi-temporary structure, which was out of this world. And I remember it, it happening. I remember him bringing it in and people thinking, this is absolutely ridiculous. Because <laughs> um, there was so much time and effort and clearly money had gone into it. But he justified it by saying, you know, we did, we're doing billions or millions, certainly hundreds of millions of dollars worth of business within this building. And that's how he justified it, because the clients were impressed they were, you know, they were more likely to sign on the dotted line because it gave an impression of us as McLaren being hugely impressive and professional. And so that kind of thing, you know, I have to respect him for. He, he, he had ideas that were way ahead of their time. Some didn't work, but lots did. And I think most of Formula One, whether they like it or not, has had to follow Ron Dennis at various times over the years as much as they'd all like to criticise him. Uh, Mark, uh, well, before we push our luck too much with the amount of internet you have left, I'd just like to finish up by you know, talking a little bit about the sacrifices you make in F1. Is part of that the fact that I hear from my engineering colleagues who have friends who instead went into Formula One instead of our industry, that, that perhaps the pay isn't necessarily in line with industry standards. Certainly the hours are very antisocial. Do you just get to a point where you go, actually, I just want to have a family? Well, um, I mean, look, I, I would never complain about, about my job because I genuinely loved it every minute of it. I got into it. It was a dream job. Um, you know, the pay, the pay was pretty good. It wasn't, you know, probably if you worked out your hourly rate at times, I think it was probably terrible. Um, I think nowadays it's probably a bit easier in terms of there are things like, you know, health and safety has become fashionable these days. So they have curfews, of course, as you know, in the, in the pit lane. So the teams can't work all night, which is what we certainly used to have to do. Um, there are night shifts. Hello there. Hello, sorry. It signed me out of the Wi-Fi for some reason. <laughs> oh, that's right, because I was starting to lose you anyway, so I was, I was desperately going to wrap it up, seeing as we'd pushed our luck with the Wi-Fi. And I've taken up quite a lot of your time. Um, but I, uh, I had a listener question, and I apologise to the listener because I've forgotten who it was, but who has just asked your opinion, having worked in the paddock, if you could pick your dream team of two drivers who you would, you know, from the modern era, if you like, who you would put in your team... Um, 
and also one guy who hasn't made it to F1, perhaps, who you would put in? Uh, good question. I think, um, I mean, I have to say, despite the difficulties we had, Lewis and Fernando were an awesome pairing in terms of their talents. Um, the only person who I'd really love to see perhaps in that mix would be Max Verstappen. Um, so I think if you've got a team of Lewis and Max, I mean, I think that's pretty formidable. Um, and, Lewis and, with and the might experience, happen. I think, say again. I'm saying it, it might happen perhaps in a couple of years at Mercedes. Well, it, yeah, it could well do, couldn't it? I mean, I think that's something that would be quite incredible. I think Lewis is probably pound for pound the best driver that we've had of a generation. And Max is certainly the most exciting of the youngsters. So I think that would be incredible. Um, as for drivers that never made it to F1, I'm not sure. One that surprised me, actually, uh, is Mark Hines. Um, he, he's now a regular in the Formula 1 paddock because he works with Lewis Hamilton uh, behind the scenes. But when I was back doing Formula 3, back in sort of 98, 99, he, uh, I think he won the championship in 99, if I remember rightly, and was talk, you know, being talked about as one of the big things. I think he may have beaten Jensen Button, if I remember rightly, in that season. I'm not quite sure. Um, but he, you know, he didn't go on to make Formula One, which is a real surprise to me. I thought he was an incredible driver, certainly stood out at the time. But for whatever reason, and there were a number of different reasons, he didn't quite tick the box for a Formula One team. And occasionally you get that. It's not, as we all know, it's not just about having the talent, which I think is a shame because that's what we really want to see in Formula One is just simply the best drivers racing the best cars. It, it makes you wonder um, if you had 20 of the absolute best drivers available without any other factors, what would the race weekends look like? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, well, listen, I mean, the, the sort of, the, the real challenge or the thing to, to worry and wonder about here is that um, who are the best drivers, but then what cars do you put them in? Because there's such a spread of cars and uh, performance levels of cars that we've gone way beyond the, the point in Formula One of a an exceptional driver being able to to drag a, yeah. a mediocre car around to consistent results, which you perhaps used to get back in the old days. But the the performance differential between cars now is so significant, or we're at the absolute peak of performance with most cars. Very little margin in terms of performance left at the top which means that there's not a huge amount of difference that the driver can make to those cars. So to really judge who the best drivers are, you've got to put them in the same car. And even then, certain drivers suit certain types of car and certain types of racing. So it's almost an impossible question. It's the question we all, I'm sure you get asked it as well. We all get asked, if you put them all in the same car, who would come out on top? There's not really an answer for it. But I suspect someone like Lewis, who has managed to adapt and is pretty uh, you know, experienced now, would be right the way up there. Mark, thank you so much for squeezing us into your busy schedule. Um, the name of the book is The Mechanic, The Secret World of the F1 Pit Lane. It's out on the 2nd of November and uh, people can pre-order yep. it from your website. Is that f1elvis.com? Uh, yes, and there's also a link at the top of my um, uh, there's a link at the top of my Twitter page or my Instagram page. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. Um, but yeah, out on the second of November. So uh, happy Christmas, everybody! Mark, thank you so much for your time. Big dirty news. Brendan Hartley in a Toro Rosso. Who would have seen that? 
coming. In all seriousness, we were so surprised uh, just to hear that uh, Gasly was going to end up missing the US Grand Prix because he has to be uh, at the Super Formula finale, uh, which, of course, he he can still win that. And uh, so there's been a, a bit of a hustle and bustle about that. But Brendan Hartley, of all people, Matt. Yeah, well, looking at it, it kind of does make sense. Because first of all, let's start with Gasly. Gasly is under contract to Honda. Honda is going to be supplying who next year? Oh, right, Toro Rosso. So we don't want to irritate them. And let's face it, they're probably not going to be winning any Formula One championships this year. So at least this lets them win a thing somewhere. And as far as Gasly goes, uh, Gasly, as far as Hartley goes, too many wise, not enough time. As far as Hartley goes, actually, if you think about it, it makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, he was a junior for Toro Rosso. He did drive the car in 2012, but he currently drives for Porsche in WEC. And we have heard more than a little talk about a potential Red Bull Porsche mashup going on. And finally, and let's just be clear about how good a driver he is. Do you remember that year that Hulkenberg won Le Mans? Vaguely. Yeah, well, that was actually mostly thanks to the night stint that Hartley ran in that car. He was the fastest of the lot. So, and because he's raced WEC, he's also familiar as would as Buemi would have been with the uh, Coda layout and having driven it in a car with some similar characteristics in terms of power unit to what he'll have to deal with on the uh, Formula One car. That said, I wouldn't expect miracles because these cars are ferociously tricky to get around the circuit. Yeah, I suppose most people uh, assumed Buemi at first as maybe someone who is still potentially tied in um, with Red Bull and not, you know, you, you pointed it out. He was part of the Red Bull Junior program, but didn't really get much farther than testing the cars uh, before he was dropped. Yeah, entertainingly, it was they kept Fiat on and dropped him. So good old Daniel's year just continues to get better and better and better. Uh, should should Hartley finish in the points and Fiat not finish? Always a possibility. Yeah, it, it will just be like, uh, uh. I mean, really, you got to feel bad for the guy because it has just gone from bad to worse to worser to like the worsening worser that's you couldn't even imagine being possible. It's a series of unfortunate events for for Daniel Kvyat, but I mean, in in all seriousness, what can we expect him to do? Having you know ju- to just jump in the car at uh, a, a circuit that he, he is familiar with, uh, but uh, in a car that he won't be at all uh, familiar with. I mean, even the power unit, yes, they are they are hybrids, but they're also very uh, very different. So, Summers, what can we expect from him? Well, it's going to be a difficult task, I would imagine, for him to jump on board um, from an engineering perspective, um, jumping into a single seater. Uh, you know, there, yes, we talk about hybridization of WEC and Formula One, but they are very different animals in the way that they operate. Um, so, yeah, I just think it might be quite a bit of a challenge. And to peg him against Daniel, you know, if he does do a, a really good job, um, might put another nail in said coffin. And that's really, I, do we really want to see that? Do we want to see Fiat hang on um, for, for another year? I mean, the boy's been through enough. Yeah, and he, he, you know, he's a podium finisher at the end of the day when he, when he was uh, back in China. So, you know, it, it shouldn't realistically be the end of his career, but he keeps getting pegged back, unfortunately. Um, 
perhaps there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes with Toro Rosso, Red Bull and his relationship, etc. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this all, all, all swings out. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what interests me is that, you know, Formula One, it's a physical game, but it's very, very, very much a mental game. And and he was. He, was po- he, he had podiums with Red Bull. He was challenging. And then he got demoted, and it has just spiraled out of control. And truthfully to me, uh, I see great similarities with Palmer, who is all year long been just thrashed for his poor performance, but only in the last few races has he had the same car uh, as the person that he's been competing against. And it just seems clear from the off, Renault were putting a lot more resources into Hulkenberg's side of the garage than Palmer's. And this could very well have been the case case for Fiat all along. We'll never know that. But the other one, uh, other example that I'm put in mind of, and this is the other side of the coin, and this is the dramatic personal narrative side of the coin, is there was, um, if you follow American baseball, uh, there was a relief pitcher uh, pitched for the Braves, my hometown team. And uh, in the bottom of the ninth, game-winning home run off of him. Now, this guy threw the ball uh, triple digits, over 100 miles an hour, 160 kilometers an hour. And he was a fearsome relief pitcher. After that one single loss, he came back the next season, and he could throw just as fast, but half the time he couldn't hit home plate. He would literally throw it into the stands. And he never, ever ever recovered and this is the other possibility with fiat and i think that's the part it's just it's hard to watch if that's really what's going on i will apologize to all of our european viewers for not understanding a word of what matt just said about baseball uh, so we will move things on let's move things on and talk about uh, sauber because they are pushing for uh, some listed parts from ferrari much in the same way that has get uh, a, a technical helping uh, from the Scuderia, uh, and it's it seems to me that you know Sauber only stand uh, to benefit from it. Uh, they're they're pushing it more as a potential B team, especially if they're going to put someone like Giovinazzi or Leclerc in the car uh, next year as well, and potentially a, a more up to date Ferrari engine as well. Sauber can save a little bit of money on that as well. Really, it just seems like a case of will ferrari let them it's well it's a case of a win-win as you say chris at the end of the day the listed parts is a difficult area at the end of the day because a a lot of the constructors want to be constructors in within their own rights but sauber already purchased a lot of equipment from ferrari in terms of the power unit gearbox rear suspension and so all they're really doing is extending that deal they're moving it across to sort of the brake assemblies both front and rear and the front suspension assembly and what that does is it takes pressure off of sauber to actually design these components it takes people away from that side of the the building elements and the design elements and it allows them the free time to actually help to develop the rest of the car so yeah it, it is potentially quite a big game changer for for sauber and obviously we've already seen the sort of leaps and bounds that haas have had in that respect so yeah i do see it as kind of a, a positive move for them and we know that Toro Rosso are doing something similar with Red Bull next year. There's going to be a bit more synergy between the teams and uh, the cars. And uh, so that would be a benefit uh, to them as well. But is uh, Ferrari's decision on, on Sauber maybe going to be attempted by someone like Leclerc coming into Formula One? They don't want to give him, you know, subpar machinery. 
Yeah, I would imagine that that's quite quite a big deal. You know, if they if they've got a Ferrari Academy driver on board, they they don't want him to be languishing down in the depths. They want to give him some equipment that might be able to help him to fight towards the the sharper end of things. It's not going to make Sauber suddenly jump four or five places up the grid. Let's let's be clear. It's just a helping hand. It will help to move their their development around and give them more resources to put elsewhere. But yeah. Again, as you mentioned, the the chance of Leclerc driving might might uh, have instigated this sort of thing. Well, it was interesting to me when I saw stories about it. I saw a lot of them pitched as it's more like Sauber needs to decide what they want to do because they have a wind tunnel and they have the staff to design these parts. So if they just flat out buy them from Ferrari, a la the Haas model, then suddenly they're accessing uh, a, an otherwise useful portion of their workforce. So uh, I had seen the decision put in, in those terms and, and was curious if you had any thoughts on that, Summers. Yeah, I think, as I've just mentioned, it mo- means that they're able to move the resource around. You know, these these designers, yes, there may be designer break duct element for the last five years, but it doesn't mean that they can't go on to design something else, another surface. You know, these are aero surfaces after all. So that predominantly what we're looking at because in terms of performance from the the brake components themselves there's not a huge difference in terms of what Sauber are able to offer um, as they run Brembo anyway and what Ferrari will supply them in fact it may actually be a positive from a mechanical aspect of things from a cooling aspect of things you know at the end of the day Ferrari are designing something that might give an advantage to, to Sauber whereas at the moment they're having to force their own agenda onto things. And like we say, you know, that's not going to be a, a big jump up from them because where it stands, Sauber is easily the bat market team. We're not talking quite manic atrium level uh, just yet, but it does sort of seem to be heading that way. Yeah, but I would be mindful as well of the fact that they've invested quite a lot in, in this season in terms of updating this car. Um, in fact, the last race, they had, uh, sorry, um, in Malaysia, they had quite a, an update package. Um, so they're not resting on their laurels and we must remember that they're running a year old Ferrari engine and that has a quite a performance deficit especially when you have to think that Ferrari are now on version four of this power unit that power unit hasn't had any updates so it will give them a big performance dent so would you expect then um as I would for Sauber, if they were to take advantage of this listed parts deal, to be there or thereabouts with, say, maybe Haas in terms of uh, competitiveness? I would expect them to, to push towards Haas. I, I think the biggest problem that Sauber have in comparison to Haas is the fact that they've been enjoying this sort of relationship since they entered the sport. So it will take a bit of time for, for Sauber to try to ingratiate themselves in this respect. But yeah, I do see them pushing towards them. Right. We have a question from the chat room. Artemy EX asks, would those parts, they get integrate well into the chassis, though, or will will they kind of imitate the Ferrari chassis? I would expect them to make some very similar design considerations to Ferrari. Um, They've had to be very different this year because of the power unit they're running. So if you take a look at this year's Sauber, the way that the monocoque is constructed tries to take advantage in a cooling respect of last year's power unit. So I would expect them to work quite closely with Ferrari. And yeah, we we may almost see three very, very similar cars going into next season with Ferrari, Haas and, and Sauber. I mean, if, if Haas and Sauber are effectively running the same Ferrari listed parts, 
you'd almost expect them to be on pretty much the same pace. It's probably more a question of whether Haas can get their brakes uh, sorted out. Um, but I suppose in, in terms of that cooling, then we can expect to see uh, Sauber running the much thinner side pods that we were all quite surprised to see on the Ferrari at the beginning of the year. I still feel that that's a design that will be held by Ferrari. Um, it's such an intricate aerodynamic layout, not only from a, a side pod perspective, but from the rest of the car as well. So to ask Sauber to make that kind of leap would be quite a, quite a big thing. There might be other teams on the grid that might be prepared to have put the effort into understanding and actually improving on that um, going into next season. But I do think that for Sauber, that might be a, a bit of a leap too far. Is now a good time to bring up customer cars? Because this is basically what we're talking about. It's a sort of Formula One version of customer cars that isn't quite the full idea of it, but it's about as close as we've got to it. Um, maybe that that's a, a topic for uh, another show. Uh, but for now, I want to talk about um, Williams because, I mean, what's going on over there? You've got a lot of drivers sat in there around Williams uh, vying for that seat. Massa's being quite bullish uh, about it. He's come up with some interesting stuff that they it would be wrong to get rid of me. The people who know racing at Williams want me to stay. It would ruin the team if I were to leave. I just want to know where both of you guys perhaps stand on uh, Felipe uh, compared to some of their other options. Well, uh, personally, I think given the uh, scale and size of his uh, retirement party in Brazil last year, uh, it's it's more than a bit unseemly for him to be showing so much effort to retain his seat, although clearly he wants to. Um, I don't know, though. Uh, I, I've heard he's lost budget and sponsors. I think if you're talking about Kubica, I think the the rumors we've heard are that he will come with a fairly sizable sponsorship along with the reputation for being an exquisitely good development driver, which Williams desperately need. I mean, desperately, desperately need, because they've suffered pretty severe issues um, correlating what happens on track with what they've been designing in their uh, factory. Um, and to me, the whole thing is like an episode of Survivor or something at this point. You know, we've seen how, how much contact has uh, Massa had in the last two or three races now that Williams has started openly discussing who's going to replace him. You know, he, he's, he's definitely trying hard, but that may not be improving the results very much. And just, you have to wonder, I mean, for me at least, just from a personnel management point of view, you could not possibly go about this in a worse way because it's not, it's not going to help Massa drive better. And, and it just, I mean, why air that laundry in public? But that's just me. Uh, what do you think, Summers? Well, yeah, I think, unfortunately, Massa's day is done. Um, I, I don't understand where Williams stood at the start of the season. They got themselves boxed in a corner when, obviously, Botas moved across to Mercedes um, and almost forced themselves into having to take Massa back to have some kind of correlation to work with alongside Stroll. Um, but for me, it, it's a no-brainer. They have to have to move on from here if they want to continue to develop the car. They've already proven that from their perspective that Massa cannot uh, provide them with the feedback, etc., that they require to be able to to make that leap up the grid that they're so desperately looking for. I mean, even Paddy Lowe is admitting that they're looking at Force India as the team to follow. 
um, because you know they're, they're operating on very similar budgets. And as we know, Force India are very good. They're very efficient in the way in which that they approach their design. Um, so to me, it really needs to be looked at from the perspective of either Kubica. If he is fit enough, for me, he is the best fit just purely from a marketing perspective, from a feedback perspective, and perhaps even from a results perspective. I think the only unknown quantity is how he's going to perform at the nitty-gritty at, say, Monaco on a street circuit. But they will have De Resta to fall back on in that position. So I was just going to say, surely De Resta would be the safe, sensible option in this regard, because he's been their test and development driver for a few years now. So we know that he can develop the car. He's quite familiar with the car. He Im- impressed in a way in the one-off race he did in Hungary, although I'm sure they're not looking at that as much as the other years of effort that he's put in uh, to working on that car. So surely he must be the safe option. And why take the risk with Kubica if you don't know if he's going to be able to do a, a circuit like Monaco or, or, or the, the, the tougher challenges, maybe the, the higher G-forces at Silverstone, for example? I think the interesting part, though, with De Resta is he's been on board when Massa almost exited at the, at the end of last season. And so if Williams really thought that De Resta had the potential to help the team, would they not have taken him on board at the start of this season when they brought Massa on board? And that's where I kind of fall on the De Resta side of things. But we also have to remember that there is another driver that has suddenly become available on the market. Um, and he does come with a large budget, something that will entice Williams. Now, I know we've got a bit of a shootout going on between Kubica and um, De Resta at Hungary this week. Um, but for me, you know, Palmer might be the other alternative. How, how, in all seriousness, how relevant would uh, a 2014 uh, car shootout between those two uh, be? Because I, I think a lot of people uh, have, have criticized the idea of it. Some people have said you won't learn anything uh, from it. So, where, in your professional opinion, does that stand with you? Well, it's a direct comparison at the end of the day, isn't it? We're, it doesn't matter whether it's a, a, a 2014 car or a 2004 car. At the end of the day, we're getting a direct correlation between the performance of both of those drivers. Uh, and that gives the engineers uh, an opportunity to extrapolate that in terms of how it can be used going forward. Yes, it would be nice if they could run a t- 2017 car, but it's just not an option. Right. And just to make it more fun, the chat room is now bringing up the option of Verline, who might very well be out at Sauber. But Summer shakes his head. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It says, no, chat room, you've got it all wrong. Well, as we're reliably informed by Joe, um, you know, that they've got this contract with Martini that they need a driver that is over 25 to, to facilitate their contract. How much of a corner is that putting Williams into, in all seriousness? Because it, it does seem like it limits your options quite uh, drastically. Yeah, well, uh, you have to remember as well, the contract was written with Botas in mind, knowing that they'd got a driver that was going to or should have continued with them for a number of years. So he effectively should have become that driver and they then could have taken Stroll on board and developed Stroll. He gets to the ripe old age that allows then another driver to come in. You know, so it's it's one of those where uh, the, the dominoes have fallen and caught them out perhaps. Um, but it all comes down to money at the end of the day. And, you know, a contract like they've got with Martini is quite important to a team like Williams. Is it worth the five million Mercedes paid for for him, though? Was it five million? Something in that magnitude, I believe. Um, Yeah, of course it was. To to Mercedes, it was certainly worth the five million. But was it it a bit cheap? Uh, Did Williams let him go for a little little too too less? Because I think... To Williams, Bottas is maybe worth a lot more than he was to Mercedes. To be fair, they were both in awful situations. Uh, So perhaps the five minutes, maybe, yeah, maybe that is too cheap. You can't put a price on a driver like, like your children. And that's what they are to, to teams, I suppose. Or am I, am I selling that too much? No, I'm getting the shake of the head from, from Summers. Uh, let's talk about, uh, Carmen Jorda because she has upset people again. Uh, I don't know if uh, you've seen the comments on online, but she has enraged the community uh, by effectively saying that men and women cannot be compared on on the racetrack, uh, and it, uh, that's not—it's not the best thing to be saying, uh, to to be honest, because it's not very maybe empowering is is the wrong word, but. It, I don't think it's quite sending the right message across. We can sit here as three men and comment upon this if we wish, but if you've got some thoughts, then please share them. I would have gone for accurate or true. I mean, specifically what she said was that women can't compete with men and they need their own series. And the only reason she was even invited, as far as I know, is because she was able to append the letter F and the number one after her name, thanks to her entirely useless time at Lotus when they were desperate for any money they could find. And, uh, I, you know, is it for me to comment? No, but people like Simona de Silvestre, de Simona de Silvestro, Sophia Flourish, Tatiana Calderon, Danica Patrick. I don't know. There's a very long list of the uh, Betska Visser. There's a huge list of women competing with men on an equal footing right now um, and and succeeding just as much, if not more so. So uh, to me, the comment was disingenuous from the off and uh, whatever producer booked her for this should probably be dragged out of town 
hogtied on a rail and 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 sent packing for good because it was a huge mistake and and uh, the only thing good about it was i think the controversy brought forward to everyone's attention a lot of up and coming young uh female drivers who were doing a spectacular job yeah and i I'd really like people to go out and read uh, Luke Smith. Um, he did a piece for NBC. So if you follow him on Twitter, it's Luke Smith F1. Now, he re- wrote a really great piece about uh, female drivers in motorsport in general and, you know, going to understand the, the, the amount of difficulties that females go through in order to get to the top and be able to compete against men. You know, it's a, it's a smaller field at the end of the day. There are less women in motorsport. It is a fact. So for them to be able to rise above uh, uh, the male population, let's say, then they have to do they have to do more. They have to work harder, and and they are doing that. There's plenty of examples of for female drivers outperforming um, their their male. Uh, counterparts and so yeah I, I think um the the biggest problem that you have with Carmen is that even if she did have a female series and she had all of these other drivers in with her she would still finish last so you know based on her performances in other series you know she she has no way of putting herself in the same league as these other female drivers unfortunately well wow, we are really roasting uh Carmen Jordan here uh, today, much in the same way that Will Buxton has been roasting Ferrari team principal Maurizio Arriva Bene. I don't know if uh, anybody else read um, this, but it was quite a, a, a lengthy piece about uh, the internal politics of Ferrari's real fascinating um, insight. Uh, and um, basically, what, given context of the season, Ferrari has been ruled by fear. And Maybe that explains some of the certainly some of the drivers' um, behavior. I couldn't possibly comment on some of the team's behavior because uh, I myself don't have that same insight as, as someone uh, like like Will, for example. But certainly the drivers on track they seem to be sort of snapping a little bit more. Yeah, and and I have to say, just based on my own life experience, my own work experience, that leadership matters, particularly when you're talking about the culture of the team and. In a team ruled by fear, where your manager yells at you all the time, it's going to encourage you to turn around and do those same sorts of things to your coworkers and, in this case, to your competitors. And and you know, I'm not fortunate enough to get to go to the races and wander around the paddock with the credentials hung around my neck. But Buxton has proved to be an accurate. Uh, truth teller as far as what's going on and this column interested me very much because it's coming at the end of his tenure at nbc and i suspect he has even less reason than usual to try and moderate any anything he'd like to say and he he's been on a bender about ferrari and their lack of compliance with the press all year long as many people have been. I think you two summers have suffered this as well. They are incommunicative. They don't answer requests for interviews. They have closed up the shop. And now that it's all gone wrong, if there's anything we've learned about Mark Ioni, it's that he does not tolerate, he does not give you very much rope with which to hang yourself. So his prediction of Arriva Bene being out is one I can see uh, is being absolutely true 
and possibly welcome, uh, depending upon who takes over for him. Yeah, I mean, Marchionne's a, a man of his own, a man of his own, isn't he? At the end of the day, and yeah, frustration every time I see or hear one of his interviews, unfortunately, because there's very little that you can kind of take from his interviews in terms of what actually that has to do with the Formula One team. Um, he, he talks in a very much in a way of that he doesn't get things on the ground level. Um, which is understandable because he's not there uh, on the on the scene. But if you can't make those uh, judgment calls for yourself, then why are you taking those type of interviews? And I think that's bed down to Arriva Bene and the media blackout that that Will's talked about. We, you know, people in the media have talked about. You know, the, the Ferrari have just closed up shop. They don't want to talk to people. They don't want to be interviewed. It, it's a very difficult environment. Um, to be able to get information from them. Uh, and that means that, you know, this is, and Joe's talked about this on his show, you know, this is a PR-generated industry. You want to talk about your product. And Ferrari have failed to do that for a number of years, not only under Arriva Bene, but also his predecessors, because perhaps of the, the structure that you have at Ferrari. Um, and, and, yeah, it's, it's a difficult time. And uh, as you've just said, I think heads might roll if, the performances don't um, don't bear fruit towards the end of the season. Should we maybe give Sebastian Vettel some credit then? Because there was an article on Autosport very recently about uh, boring F1 drivers and how you know it is very much a PR game. But Seb is quite a popular uh, driver. He's seen as a, a more humorous, light-hearted, uh, basically more human than a lot of the drivers are allowed to present themselves and given the sort of dictatorship that ferrari lives in at the moment that's maybe an accurate metaphor for it uh that that seems like uh, quite an, uh, an endearing thing i would say the same for Kimi raikkonen but there's that argument that he has no personality which is his personality some people it's it's very marmite with him as you say he doesn't have a persona that comes across in the media um and that translates as funny to to a lot of the fans but as you say, yeah, Sebastian, he, he's endearing. Um, he does make jokes, etc. And there are other characters within the paddock uh, that, that are starting to come to the fore now that FOM are a bit more relaxed in the way that things are going about. Um, Daniel Ricciardo, for instance, look at what he did with Lewis Hamilton's phone on the on the podium. Um, and um, we all know about what uh, Alonso does. He's the, the meme king. So... Um, yeah, I think there's more scope for for that side of the sport to to really make a a leap forward under FOM uh, and their new the new uh, approach that they're taking as well. Well, I mean, they, I mean, it's all fascinating stuff, really, because there's uh, all the internal politics, all the insight um, that we get. It's always really, really um, great to uh, to to get that and and have a little bit of a discussion uh, about it. So before we move on to tech time, let's talk. Uh, not tech, but other stuff with you, Summers. What are you up to? Yeah, so I'm just doing the usual things. Um, SummersF1.co.uk and Motorsport.com, where I'm working with Giorgio Piola, uh, trying to put a bit more content out on the blog at the moment. And uh, our friend Mr. Trumpets has got his own column on there, uh, do, looking at the uh, qualifying and race reviews. So, yeah, it's uh, it's all the same as usual, really, just trying to do a bit more. 
I saw trumpets posting some stuff on, uh, about that on the Twitter sphere, uh, which is exciting to see. And I suppose some as the we're getting into that part of the season, the late development uh, race, potentially even some developmental parts for 2018. So it's just quite an exciting time for tech. Yeah, it will be because we'll start to see um, the the the. the- peel off into 2018 so we might see some parts in free practice that have very little relevance to this car but helps the teams to develop parts for next year um uh, we are still seeing quite large update packages though um you know ferrari and mercedes in particular have been pushing quite hard recently so yeah it's, it's an exciting time in in the world of summers and where can we catch up with you on twitter uh yeah summers f1 on twitter and while you're there, give the show a follow at Missed Apex F1 as well. Right, let us bring us to the tech time. So we've just got the heading for the start of tech time, uh, 2021 regulations, which is quite a broad um, topic because there's a lot of things on uh, the table for that. So, yeah, talk us through it. Well, you know, it's it, it's a big topic to talk about because it's the shape we're shaping the future of the sport. Uh, we've got Ross Braun and uh, a few of the other guys that he's now got on board in in a technical working group, looking at the best ways to improve the sport going forward. So we're looking at uh, both a a change in power units and also a change in the aero side of things to try and measure things up against one another. So yeah, it's going to be a, a very interesting. Um, development going forward and in fact it appears that we may have the first knockings of some um perhaps look at the regulations in the next few weeks um which will be interesting to see where the the direction is that we're we're heading for for 2021 and i suppose on that uh, agenda they've got the topic of uh overtaking as well hot on the list i know ross is very keen to to do that he's also quite keen in the sporting side of it to to drop grid penalties to get rid of drs i mean where do we stand on those things well yeah everybody wants to get rid of drs don't they you know it's it's a gimmick that's what everybody talks about drs in the same sentence as it's something that ross himself has already said that he would like to remove drs immediately But unfortunately, it was a sticking plaster that was put in place to sort out the problem that we have with AeroWake. And obviously, that is going to be a huge challenge to overcome because the reason we have DR to improve straight line speed is because there's a deficit in the corners, which is always going to be a problem. No matter what type of vehicle Formula One operates with, we will have an issue whereby there's a problem trailing another car in a corner because of the aerodynamic wake that comes off the car in front. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's a very difficult topic. I don't expect them to be able to resolve everything straight away, but there'd be, there's a method, there's a method behind everything that they're looking to do. Uh, And that's the most important part because in previous experiences, Formula One has just sort of said, yeah, this this is how we'll fix it rather than actually researching, developing ideas to actually improve things. And that was something I I know we discussed this on last week's show without you. Sorry about that. Um, But that was something that struck me straight away is it seems like they're taking a more research based approach to what they want to do. Uh, But that said, Uh, You know, certainly if these outlines we've been uh, leaked in the press hold true, uh, what are your impressions? Is this going to be the fix that Formula One needs going forwards? Or is this 
uh, simply the the best that they're going to be capable of under the circumstances, trying to balance the interests of the manufacturers that are already in the sports versus the teams that are already in the sport and so forth. Yeah, I think that's very much the uh, the difficulty of, of changing things on this level is the fact that you're asking the teams to relinquish control. We're already suggesting that the strategy group will be dissolved, which in my opinion, isn't fit for purpose in in the first place, but it is a faction in which that it allows the rulemaking to happen. And so for the teams to allow that to disappear is quite a big stepping stone, but it also then allows the entry of um, the uh, FOM technical working group to actually make these changes. But I don't think it's all going to happen overnight. You're not going to suddenly see a, a sport that will improve to the point where we don't complain about something there's so many different facets to this sport that make it a technical interest that there will always be somebody that is an outlier will always be able to find something that somebody else can't and so and that's what we're looking for it's an engineering challenge as much as a a driver challenge in in that respect well, in that regards, and we've certainly seen the uh, research on the Premier League, and uh, I also know, you know, even over here in baseball, that barring a once-in-a-generation breakthrough, like, for example, the Moneyball breakthrough in baseball, generally speaking, budget wins. The more you spend, the more likely you are to win. Now, it's not a guarantee of success because everyone's immediately going to go shout, Toyota, Honda, yeah, 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 whatever. But the reality is, if you look at the teams, they have the most staff, that when they have the most staff, they spend the most money, they have the most resources. So the, just looking again at these outlines, I mean, we're talking about specking some of the electric motors, the H and the K, it, it, and and we're hearing whiffs of budget caps to come. Do you think they are going to be able to create a level enough playing field that someone like a Force India, or assuming they get their act together, a Williams, we might see them on a podium again, or we might see them challenging for a win, maybe in a wet race or something like that. Or is it really just going, is this all just window dressing to keep Red Bull happy and at the same time to keep Mercedes, Honda, uh, Renault and Ferrari from walking at the same time? That's the key balancing act, isn't it? Is being able to keep all of these racing entities happy with the actual regulations that they're being, uh, furnished with because there are different uh, political viewpoints on the direction the sport should be taking now the original draft as i understand it of the 2021 regulations saw a much more basic um engine let's say return to the sport where twin turbo v6 with a very mild hybridization whereas now it would appear that what has been brought forward because the manufacturers need appeasing is specification parts. So we'll have a specification MGUK, MGUH um, to, to try to narrow the possibility to between each of these manufacturers. Now, that's all well and good, but we must remember that the, it's not only a hardware uh, side of things on, on, on the uh, hybridization and the gap between uh, the different manufacturers. We're also talking about software um, and the way in which these machines all operate together. So if we standardize the MGUH, let's say, do we then have to standardize the turbo because it is attached to the MGUH? And there are ways in which you could change your turbo design to make it much more efficient, let's say. Is there an argument against standardization of some of these parts? Because 
in my opinion, I really enjoy seeing, especially what we've seen this year, as an example, you know, the Ferrari's superior traction out of a corner, but then lead that onto a longer straight, the Mercedes MG UK, which is better than the Ferraris, that puts them ahead by the time they get to an end of a straight, for example. And I like seeing that, that compromise being, being reached and the advantages of a different car being played into uh, one another, just in different parts of the track, let alone at various different tracks. Yeah, but what I think it lends itself towards is perhaps where we were in the V8 era. What they're trying to do is create some kind of parity between the the power units themselves so they operate very, very similarly to one another. And then you're putting the power back in the constructor's hands rather than the the engine manufacturer's hands. Um, You're allowing the chassis to become more dominant, which is obviously something that's more controllable by the driver. And I think that's something we touched on in the last show. It's very much a balance of these elements. And anytime you have a new um, power unit set of regulations, you're going to unbalance the formula. And it's going to be very much in favor of whoever starts out with the best power unit. But generally speaking, over time, either through regulation or just uh, through development and the um, uh, lessening of returns on whoever had the head start, uh, you tend to get parity. And and this was, as you mentioned, the V8, this was actually the, the, the case, is Renault never really caught up with the, the brute horsepower of the Mercedes engine, but they were able to deploy it more efficiently or efficiently enough that they were competitive. And And that's really what you're saying that we should be looking for based on what's been proposed. So where do we then stand with uh, fuel upgrades? Because that's been quite a hot talking point during the hybrid uh, era, is that we know that Ferrari made a big step up to Mercedes with a fuel upgrade. A lot of Red Bull's success in the last two or three races has been because of a a fuel upgrade in in Singapore. So are we then going to get some stringency on fuel upgrades as well? Well, there are already some targets in place in terms of the amount of uh, fuel updates that can can be made throughout a season from next year onwards, I believe. Um, However, you have to remember that those um, upgrades came back in the V8 era as well. They were just less talked about. We just didn't have that information given to us as much. You know, it was something that was kind of hidden in the background. But as Matt was just saying, you know, the difference between your Mercedes grunt and Ferrari grunt versus the Renault power unit was outweighed by the uh, ability for the Renault V8 to uh, hot and cold blow better. Um, so, yeah, we want to see these sort of differences between um, the power unit manufacturers or engine manufacturers um, to be able to create a differential between them. Um, we don't want to see one team running off necessarily into the distance, but we do want to see, like we've had this year, a bit of back and forth between uh, the constructors, um, especially in terms of the fact that the cars are very different when we look at the Ferrari and the Mercedes and, and the Red Bull. I think Formula One does need to be very wary about where it heads with with new engine regulations and uh, aerodynamic regulations as well, because when you start controlling things too much, what you end up with is Formula Two. Yeah, and we actually, along those lines, have a question from the chat room. Um, Baja would very much like to know what you think the delta between the engines are at this point. Um, He he thinks the media might be overstating the difference uh, power-wise between the engines, and is curious what, what you have on that. Okay, well, it depends, doesn't it? Because we're talking about different modal settings as well, because 
the, the problem that you have here is that we have four machines effectively working in harmony with one another. You have the internal combustion engine, the turbo, the MGUH and the MGUK. And unless they're all running flat out at full deployment, then it's difficult to, to, to imagine that where they are against one another. Now, if I had to put figures on things, I hate doing figures because they're, they're unrepresentative in terms of where they all lie, if you, if you understand where I've just come from. So, yeah, we, we, I still believe that Mercedes have a little bit over Ferrari, but we're talking in the tens of horsepower, you know, it's 10, 20 horsepower perhaps at, at full deployment. Um, then you've got Renault, who are maybe another 10 or 20 behind that. And Honda, unfortunately, may still lie around about 50 horsepower behind, 50 to 60, I, I would suggest. But, you know, as I say, it, it depends where they're lying, their deployment um, stakes. Were there was there such disparity in power figures during the V8 era though? Yeah, Re- Renault were down on fifty horsepower um, versus Mercedes and Ferrari. So we've been here before. It's just that it's there's more to deal with within the hybrid era because the four machines that I've just mentioned have to work with one another to recover and dispense that energy. Um, so at any one point, they're always going to have this sort of. Uh, seesaw effect where one is performing better than the other at certain stages so if i'm understanding you correctly mm. what you're basically saying is that if you were to take each engine and each ers fully charged and deploy them say on a straightaway uh, there would probably be not as great a difference as we would see over the course of an entire lap because a lot of the difference is coming from how the ERs and and the and the curs work together along with the ice, and that's where we're seeing sort of these larger discrepancies in lap time. Yeah, we have to remember it's an energy limited formula now because you you have an energy limit on the fuel. You know the the fuel flow limit, the amount of fuel that you can use from the start of the race is 105 kilograms. The amount you can burn is 100 kilograms per per hour, and then the maximum you can dispense is 160 brake horsepower. So that is added to the internal combustion engine's numbers. Um, That's the maximum it can dispense, irrespective of how much you can make per lap. You know, at stages, you will be able to use more or less energy based on your throttle position, let's say. Let's look ahead towards uh, Circuit of the Americas then. Uh, So not quite 2021, a bit more in the the near future and uh, see what what some of the teams are are, going to be bringing um, to that, because I imagine uh, the Ferrari are going to be quite keen to to be bringing some updates to ensure that uh, if Sebastian Vettel isn't going to win this championship, he won't go down without a fight. Yeah, well, Ferrari and Mercedes have been pretty proactive in the last few races, along with Red Bull. Uh, Red Bull had updates in Singapore. Um, everybody saw the very Ferrari-esque deflector on the side of the side pod, um, which even uh, Mr. Vettel pointed out during his uh, interview with um, Will Buxton, I think it was, um, on on the grid. And um, yeah, so, you know, they're still working on low-hanging fruit at the end of the day. The the biggest area of development for 2017 is the floor, the diffuser, because of the increased height that's available to them. And then you have the barge boards and the areas surrounding the side pods, which have been opened up in these regulations. So the teams are still able to make big um, percentage gains uh, in that area. And we're now starting to see them um, 
improve though that area of the car much more regularly um to be able to optimize the car for for differing circuit uh, characteristics okay then so maybe if we were to just quantify this i know you don't like putting figures on on, on things but where do we think that you know ferrari mercedes and you throw red bull in there as well for good measure where do we think they stand compared to each other going into this weekend if i had to put uh, them in positions with one another um i would probably suggest that ferrari from an aerodynamic perspective might be at the head of the pack um i, I think their their car may suit um, circuit of the Americas better than than the other two, and I think in terms of the other two, he's it, highly dependent on how the um, performance comes from uh, the power unit in Red Bull's respect, um, uh, because it is kind of a bit of a chassis circuit. So, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a close battle, to be honest, between between those three. Um, it will be dependent really on on what updates we see as well because i do expect all three of them to have some some small uh bits and and maybe even a, a nice package for one of them so what about their spark plugs though are they going to be holding up right um i had actually taken advantage to go look at the weekly forecast for austin and i can happily report that temperature is going to be um oh i have these in uh as my daughter calls them filthy freedom units but 85 degrees Fahrenheit on Saturday for qualifying and 81 with a 62% chance of rain for the race. So that's a week out. But we know Mercedes is very temperature sensitive. So I've got to say, looking at those numbers, advantage Ferrari for sure. Yeah, and we, we also don't know the tyre pressures that uh, will be in use at this race either yet. And that, that's been quite a, a, a big um, story underneath the the radar really uh, on Merck's performance of late um especially when we look at the hotter temperatures um that, that, that they've had at the last few races it has had an impact on their performance uh especially in Malaysia uh, where they they really struggled with uh, the rear tires and obviously that has a cascade effect um causing issues at, at the front of the car as well okay so what about uh stuff about their uh oil tanks as it as it were because i know matt alluded to this article um earlier uh but there's there's been a you know a fair bit of talk. we talk about oil a fair bit uh people like christian horner coming out saying it does formula one's green ethos no favors whatsoever uh but it is a thing uh that is happening so for, i mean first of all, how much validity is there in in this uh claim at all okay so so firstly let's just remember that Formula One engines do burn a lot of oil anyway. Uh, even the V8s burnt quite a substantial amount of oil. Um, it's just a factor of using the performance at such a high end. Um, and we have to remember that the V6 power unit is producing just as much power as its predecessor um, with, with less capacity. Um, it's, it's a V6 and it's a 1.6 rather than the 2.4 V8 that we used to have. Um, so, yeah. You know, they, they are going to use oil. It, it's the matter of fact, but it's the amount of oil that, that Christian Horner is alluding to. The new regulations only allow them to burn 0.9 litres um, per 100 kilometres, I believe. Um, so that there has been quite a severe reduction um, since the start of this season to try and rein in some of this oil burning tactics, as, as they're calling it. But the thing that Matt was alluding to with the Automotor and Sport um, article is what happened at Baku when 
Ferrari were told to remove a secondary oil tank from their car. Now, the rules don't don't, don't say that you can't have a secondary oil tank, um, although the 2018 regulations will suggest as much, um, because basically what we're suggesting is that Ferrari were burning two different types of oil, um, one which would aid in combustion at very severe events, i.e. a quali mode or uh, on an overtake, etc. So, yeah, it's a technical intrigue. Um, and we all know that these things go on in the background of the sport and people like Christian Horner like to bring them out into drag them out on, out into the light because they have, don't have those advantages with the Renault power unit themselves. Well, Red Bull have had similar treatment back about some flexible parts, I understand it. Yeah, again, a story that's kind of been running its course for a long time. Um, Red Bull will always continue to push on aero flexibility or aero elasticity. Um, they haven't really changed anything. Uh, they, they're just mindful of the fact that the FIA understand what they're doing with their their flexible front wing, let's call it. Um, basically, we, we find the lower end of their um, front wing tends to dip um, to control the pitch angle. Um, it, it's something that happens at varying speeds and it helps them in terms of being able to improve their performance at low speed corners, but also improve their speed at high speed events as well. So would we want it taken away given it's allowed them to catch up to the two that have a better power unit? You know, it's one of those arguments of how far do you let it go before you start to rein it in, I think. Too far. Too far is always the answer on that one. Right. We've had a request for clarification about the Ferrari engines from the chat room. Um, we've seen it uh, put put forward in the press that they're not actually on version four, but they're version 3.XXX. And that has allowed them to continue burning the 1.2 liters per 100 kilometers. Do, do Is that the case? Um, I, I'm still waiting for clarification on that. But I would suggest that this is the case. And the reason that they actually did that is because of what we've talked about with the, the, the oil burning side of things, in as much as that the version four was supposed to use the twin oil tank scenario. So the development of that engine would have been based around using that. And then when they went to Baku and were told to, to try to rectify things, they obviously then had to go back to the drawing board with, with version four. It makes it less potent. And obviously they, they have to come up with differing solutions to try and get around that uh, oil burning issue. What's interesting to me about this is that when we heard about oil burning at the beginning of the season, it was aimed very much at Mercedes, yet somehow they managed to turn it around and point it back at Ferrari, and it seems to have done far more damage to Ferrari, uh, and I know we didn't talk specifically about the spark plugs yet that failed, but it seems to have done far more damage to Ferrari than it has to Mercedes in the long run, and in general, it has always been... Uh, and this is based on my observation, the way of the FIA to target regulations at someone who's ahead by leaps and bounds so as to hobble them and give the competitors a way to catch up. And essentially, it's just a form of balance of power. It's just generally been not as obvious and done a little bit more under the table with technical directives, which we are not entitled to see and which the FIA will not share with us. Yeah, that's correct. They don't put them out in the public domain. Um I tend to get hold of some of them when team members want to point you in the direction of something that somebody else might not be doing that's strictly 
on the table, um, let's say. So, um, yeah, it's it was initially Red Bull, I believe, that kind of wanted some clarification over the all burning in terms of being able to push the development forward with Mobile One and uh, Renault in terms of their power unit. And because they then got certain answers from the FIA in that respect that they, they were understanding that they could oil burn in certain respects they obviously started this process um and and now we end up in a situation as you say which has caught ferrari out perhaps more than it did mercedes which might have been the intended target um but at the end of the day it was all about in my opinion the the catch-up from red bull they they wanted to allow renault to try to um catch on to this idea and, and be able to do it for themselves in their own developments but reigning in Mercedes and Ferrari along the way. Well, I'll tell you what really interested me most about this article, because frankly, nothing that we're reading is really unusual. The teams pull these sorts of games on each other all the time. But what's astonishing to me is that it would all, if you had to guess where it came from, it does seem to be coming from Mercedes very much, and it seems to be aimed at everyone that might be considered their competitors. Are we really seeing um, that level of desperation in Mercedes about what's going on with their car here at the end of the season, do you think? Yeah, well, it's, it's a political game, isn't it? It's one of cat and mouse between each other in order to stop somebody else improving. And so it may actually hinder themselves, but they then understand the rules of the game because they've created the game. So... You know, it, it, it's just cat and mouse between teams, and this is where the technical directives are uh, being hidden behind a sort of black veil. It, it, it is a difficult thing to swallow as well because it means that we don't get to know the minutiae of everything. Uh, we don't know exactly what's been said about the oil burning from a historical perspective and how that relates to what we're having now. So, and who who made those requests in the first place? Because you know, at the end of the day, that is quite important to the overall story arc of, of where we we are now and where we're heading in the future. Excellent. Well, I know you probably do want to talk about that Ferrari spark plug a little bit before we move on to our race preview. So why don't you give us the lowdown on what exactly happened to poor old Ferrari and why maybe it didn't happen to Mercedes? Okay, well, the first thing is, obviously, most people just think of a spark plug as something quite innocuous, uh, something that um, is reliable, robust, something that's a known quantity, something that is very easily replaceable and quite cheap. Even Sergio Marchionne made the comment that it was a $59 spark plug that had caused this issue. And yes, it may well be if it had been uh, a normal Ferrari car, but unfortunately, we're talking about a very complex um, power unit these days and it's also stems back to the turbulent jet ignition that we've talked about in the past because the spark plugs aren't a singular item anymore they are actually part of the jet igniter um, they're, they're fit within that um, small um, sort of chamber uh, that injects the, the there's basically a chamber above the the cylinder um, which houses both the igniter and the spark plug and it delivers a, a quantity of fuel that the spark plug ignites, it then propagates the flame so that it goes into the cylinder itself and disperses at a more efficient rate and is what allows us to have this lean burn uh, technology running, obviously, at a much more efficient rate. So 
to say it was a cheap item by Marchione is is incorrect. Um, and it, to be able to replace it in 20 minutes, which is what was the time that Sebastian Vettel's car rested on the grid to the start of the race, would have been almost impossible. So, you know, because it's such a deep set item inside the, the engine these days, because it's not just a spark plug that you can take out. So, yeah, it, it was a difficult one for Ferrari and something I believe that's just one of those issues. You know, things do fail from time to time, and especially when you get to the complexity level that we're now at, where you're not just talking about a singular item. You know, they're a combined item, um, injector, spark plug, combustion element. Um, but it was something as well that nearly caught Mercedes out, um, which you you obviously alluded to to me, Matt, in the the part Ferme notes, uh, because Lewis Hamilton had to have one of his spark plugs changed um, after qualifying, along with his coil pack on the left hand bank. Yeah, and I, I suspect it's a a function of, as you said, just how the chambers work in general that puts these elements under a lot more stress, and. And as we all know, oil in the combustion chamber is also not particularly great uh, for those items, even if the oil has been designed to be very low viscosity and basically burn like fuel. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, the other thing is as well that we think, well, spark plugs, when was the last time one of those failed? And I think Martin Brundle co- quoted 1980 something happening in Australia 2014 on Lewis's car. Um, he had an injector, fa- uh, sorry, a spark plug failure uh, that finished his race early on. Um, so, you know, that that was a hybrid era car. Um, that was the last time we saw that sort of thing. And was it the, was that when they were first starting to push the limits? Of course it was because it was the first race in the hybrid era. And now we're really starting to see the teams having to push the limits even further. So is this something where we might see more failures in the future? Um, we will have to wait to see. Well, I bet if you're a Tifosi, you're certainly hoping it happens to a certain number 44 at Coda. I would imagine they'll be expecting uh, expecting something like that to happen. Excellent. Shall we jump ahead to the uh, race, our race predictions? Yeah, we are running a little bit short on time. So let's whip round one line of preview and predictions. Uh, Matt, start us off. All right. Well, I got to say, if there was ever a time to pick Ferrari, I think Coda is it, uh, unless it rains, in which case I'm still going to go with Lewis. I'm just going to put that caveat out there because I've looked up the thing now. But what strikes me is that Coda is very similar to Suzuka. I think you're going to see higher speeds through the turns. I think you're going to see Red Bull yeah, more or less in its own race, unless the Ferraris take themselves out again. And, uh, and, and that's what you're going to get. Uh, I'm kind of with Matt there. I'm going to go jump on the Ferrari bandwagon, but I will add, add a caveat that if we do see the the wet stuff, that um, I, I will see the Red Bulls trump uh, both Ferrari and Red Bull, uh, Ferrari and Mercedes. Oh, that's interesting. I was going to also back Ferrari, but the caveat of uh, in race pace because I think the uh, the qualifying pace of the Mercedes is still uh, superior in my opinion, anyway. Uh, so we are running out of time, but we've got just enough time for... Comment of the Week! Matt, who takes the award this week? Well, uh, this is a tough one. Uh, we have uh, Dom Byrne with Marco must have a series vendetta against Kvyat for hitting uh, Vettel to dish out such a prolonged barrage of psychological torture. 
MIC, Kviat pitches Carr into the wall. Uh, Evangelos Heteroclitus again in the frame with I pity the team that needs Massa, red in your best A-team voice. Um, and then poor old Rorade McKay, being a Williams fan is hard enough. Uh, Philip Allen alleging it's revenge for the suspension complaint, the oil burning. And then uh, Rob Graham with how about we all drink when Trumpet says tires. Oops. Sorry about that, Rob. Hope you didn't have to drive any place soon. And finally, uh, Dom Byrne again with cricket equals three skulls, which is pretty much true as far as I can tell. Oh, that's tough. But you know what? I got to go with Evangelos again. Pity the team that needs Massa. Oh, congratulations, Evangelos. You are this week's comment of the week. Well, that just about wraps it up for this week's show. But be sure to join us next week at the usual place, but at the unusual time, slightly later uh, as it is the US Grand Prix. So it is a a late start um, for us. But be sure to follow at Mr. Apex F1 for all the details on when the live stream is. Until then, just remember that while wounds may heal, Chicks don't necessarily dig scars, and glory only lasts for about five minutes. This has been Missed Apex Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.